Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, and at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to and we're two of them. We have been really surprised and, and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. In fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a, a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses HP Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So, all right, what are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one is going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March, and then again in April. You're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter. Or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're, we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review, and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously, we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a, a special bonus episode. Those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes, that is really one of our favorite things to do because it, it lets us work together with a, a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing. But that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. 
But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Well, hello, and welcome to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where typically, usually, we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, and this is for our listeners at home, we are live at LaughCon, the conference devoted to the also great science fiction writer R.A. Lafferty. So this is our second time here, and we're delighted. We are really so glad to be back. We had such an awesome time last year. It's a real joy to get to nerd out uh, with so many of our, our fellow comrades here for a full day like this. This year, we're doing Lafferty's short story, 900 Grandmothers. This is a, a story that was originally published in the magazine If in 1966, though we now were able to read it in our brand new copies of the brand new collection, The Best of R.A. Lafferty, with introductions, I guess, by basically everyone who's ever written a science fiction story, some of whom are in this room with us today. And we picked 900 Grandmothers to, to cover here on the show because it is Lafferty's most anthologized story, and it's going to let our, our Gene Wolfe audience easily find a copy of it. In fact, I would say that if you've got a collection of something like super best science fiction stories ever, then you've probably already got a copy of it uh, in your home. This episode, we're following a slightly different format than our typical episode, just so we can have as much time and as much room for the discussion as possible, and, and maybe to leave some time for, for questions from everybody here. Um, but for those who are not able to attend today, um, we're going to have a brief time where we just go through the recap, a plot synopsis, really, instead of a recap, and then we're just going to talk about the story. So without further ado, Glenn, let's just do the synopsis. All right, let's get to it. So 900 Grandmothers is a story of space exploration. It's a, a type of first contact story. But our brand of adventures are not scientists or even really explorers in the sort of traditional sense. They're basically space Vikings on an expedition. And, and expedition is with a capital E in this story. Now, these explorers, these space Vikings, have come to the large asteroid Proavitus to see what commercial opportunities they can shake out of the indigenous inhabitants. Uh, and this name, Proavitus, is a, a Latin word that means ancestor, and uh, that will come in shortly when we get to the, the 900 grandmothers part of the story. Our protagonist is a member of this expedition, though he's kind of the, the odd one, the, the strange member of this squad of explorers. While everyone else has taken a really good space Viking name, a, a heroic name, he's kept the name that his parents gave him, Kieran Swicegood, an awesome name. Swicegood occupies a, a special place on the expedition. He's what's called a special aspects man. And this means that while other members of the expedition to Proavitus are looking for commercial opportunities from the asteroid's natural resources or the luxury goods, things of, of that ilk, Swicegood is supposed to be looking for cultural exports, right? Aspects of Proavitus and its inhabitants that are unique, aspects that are special. And in his capacity as special aspects man, Swicegood makes an amazing, a really fantastical discovery about the Proavitoi. These people, by the way, just to be clear, are not humans. They're bona fide space aliens with a distinct language, and they have faces that look like masks, and, and some of the, the space Vikings even call them monkey faces. Okay, so Swicegood makes a fantastical discovery, and that discovery is this. The Proavitoi don't die. His native guide tells him that she has 900 grandmothers, all living in her house. 
The oldest grandmothers, of course, spend most of their time sleeping, but they're still alive, still healthy. Now, this has all just been a setup, right? Our, our story is really about Swicegood's response to this discovery. Most of us, I think, hearing that these people live forever would be really interested in knowing how, and especially in knowing if we can make that work for humans, too. And that's the interest that the expedition leader has as well, but it's not actually what captivates Swicegood, because Swicegood is obsessed with one big question. How did it all begin for him, the, the thrill of this discovery is that the very first pro-avatoi are still alive, that they know their origin story. They know how and when and maybe even why they came into existence. And Swicegood wants to know, too. He has to know, too. And so to find out, he does the only reasonable thing, and he breaks into the home of his local guide to look for these 900 grandmothers. And this home is, is pretty cool. All the Proavatoi live in homes on top of a single hill on this asteroid, which Lafferty describes as the Acropolis of Proavitus. So I think you cannot help but be thinking or imagining uh, classical Greek hobbits in some way. Inside this guide's house, though, Swicegood discovers that most of it is basement, right? Just tunnels down and down into the hill. And that's, that's the hobbit bit. So as Swicegood descends, the Proavatoi get older and older, but they also get smaller and sleepier, and they look like living dolls. Swicegood speaks with the oldest of these, and he demands to know the story of their creation. And it turns out that they have a ritual for this sort of thing. When, when new generations are getting older and sleepier, there is a special ritual during which the new initiates have to guess how the Proavatoi came to be. And this is a, a ritual, a ceremony that lasts for three days before the older ones finally reveal the secret. And so these Proavatoi won't tell Swicegood because it's not time for the ritual. But more importantly, they know that he's not one of them, that he is mortal. And the story of their creation is such a funny joke that, in fact, the, the oldest one, the oldest Proavatoi, worries that Swicegood will actually laugh himself to death if she tells him their origin story. She says, oh, it is too funny to believe. How good to wake up and laugh and go to sleep again. Nonetheless, Swicegood is not deterred. He threatens to squash the oldest and the, the smallest of them like a bee if she won't tell them or tell him. And she calls his bluff. She says, I look at you, you look at me. I wonder if you will do it. And he doesn't. The 900 grandmothers all laugh, thinking about the joke of their creation. And in the end, Swicegood, even though he still doesn't know what the joke is, he laughs with them. And he weeps, too. And he continues to laugh, even as he returns to the expedition's spaceship. And then the story ends with this line. This will be important in the, the discussion we're about to have. The story ends with this line. On his next voyage, he changed his name to Blaze Bolt and ruled for 97 days as king of a sweet sea island in M-81. But that is another and much more unpleasant story. And that brings this story to a close. So I think we can get straight into our, our discussion of this. There is a lot to talk about. This is a, a big story that is rich with lots of, of thematic elements, but also lots of interesting plot, uh, world building, also some humor, I think, that we'll talk about, some, some craft of writing. But let's start with the thematic stuff. And I think the first one that we'll do here is, is the issue of or the, the theme of origins and the quest for knowledge. Now, ultimately... 
Swaysgood fails in his quest for knowledge here, and indeed this quest seems even to destroy him, right? The story doesn't have perhaps the happiest ending. And so I think the question that I want to kick to you first, Brandon, is is why is Swaysgood so obsessed with discovering the origins of life that he nearly murders for it? Well, I think it's probably an uncontroversial statement to make here that all of us in this room are mortal, and as such we are on some level tasked with answering the question of what gives life meaning. Is it the origin of life? Is it the continuation of life? Is it our name? Um, and if, if, you know, in being mortal, the, if the origin of life is what gives us meaning, does this question include with it the suspicion that we don't think that death is something that's meaningful? Or do we think that life is meaningful because if we believe that we don't have to die, we can do what we want forever and meaning will accrue like dust on furniture. Uh, but just now with our current state, we don't have enough time to accumulate all of the meaning. And these questions really come into play between um, Kieran and Manbreaker. And I think that they really define the, the viewpoints that Lafferty is exploring in this story. And maybe the core theme of the story is that um, we have to determine the places that we can derive meaning from in our lives. But, you know, recalling uh, what Gregorio talked about last year and, and, uh, perhaps Lafferty's connection to Nietzsche. I really read this story as a, as a bit of nihilistic fiction. And I recently read a definition of nihilism in, in a book uh, called that was published recently called Nihilism and Technology by a philosopher called Nolan Gertz um, that suits the outlook of these characters well. So Gertz writes this as a definition. He says, For nihilism does not mean that life is meaningless, but rather that our search for a transcendent source of meaning of meaning, for a source of meaning external to us, external to our lives, results in our lives not being lived. Um, and, and this book, Nihilism and Technology, is deeply rooted in, in Nietzschean philosophy, in particular Nietzsche's views of nihilism. And I wonder if Lafferty here isn't making some of those same connections about the, the ways that we go about seeking meaning, about how that can obscure the things in front of us that make our lives meaningful. And I really read the end of the story as being cynical or nihilistic in that way, as Kieran turning away from life after he doesn't get his answer about the origin of life. And maybe it's ambiguous whether or not he gets the answer, as he does laugh for days but the answer certainly doesn't fulfill him. And in his quest for knowledge, which has failed, um, he just decides to take on the, the life of the tribe he's kind of fallen in with. And so he becomes king for a while somewhere else. And I'm left with the question at the end of the story of whether or not Kieran has given up the search for meaning entirely. And whether or not he's decided that all he has to live for is avoiding death. Right. I think there's something nihilistic. I think you're quite right to say there's something nihilistic at the end of the story. And even though I have phrased this theme as, as being uh, about Swicegood's sort of failure uh, to accomplish his quest for, uh, to discover origins, nonetheless, the story actually ends with an origin story for him in which he decides to stop being Kieran Swicegood and to become Blaze Bolt. So even though uh, his quest here on Proavitus, seemingly from our perspective, our interest in the story seems to, to fail, there is, he gets something that is 
original out of it, right? There's he, there's a genesis for him none, nonetheless, and so there might be something here. We can kind of maybe imagine sort of a, a circle, right, in which in which the the end and the beginning are actually really right next to each other, rather than than poles very apart on a very far apart on a on a spectrum uh, as well. Right. He seems to just you know really uh, you know to repeat this phrase, turn away from from life here. He is turning into something that he rejects at the beginning of the story. And he seems to think that he can keep himself apart from the situation that has made him his, you know, his money, his family, his social connections, and that he can somehow stay apart from that and still retain his identity. And the thing that allows him to do that is this quest for the origin of all meaning, which he thinks these uh, pro vitoi have. And he's because he's unable to do that, he just ends up floundering. He just ends up becoming what he doesn't want to be. Well, I think that's that's a good note on which we can transition into the, the second thematic element here, which is uh, immortality and death, which I think we're, we're seeing is quite you know related, quite interlinked with the idea of, of origins and this quest for knowledge. But something that struck me, especially thinking about Snuffles, which we covered last year, and and how much you know Snuffles is about creation. It's it's another actual origin story. It's a kind of inversion of of, of Genesis, or maybe perversion might be the better way to think about that. A question that I had then in, in reading this story is if the, you know, the pro avatoi do indeed, they, they live forever. They're immortal. None of them have ever died, at least from natural causes. That it seems to be a perversion of the natural order, right? The, the world that we all live in, where living creatures all die, right? That seems to be a, sort of a rule for life as far as we're concerned, as far as we can tell. Is that then a kind of perversion of God's creation? Or maybe to put it another way for you, Brandon, is how do the pro-avatoi, these eternal, these immortal creatures, sentient creatures, fit into God's creation, do you think? I was really surprised when I saw this question from you because the term creation I don't think is ever invoked in the story. So in this question, we're making some assumptions about um, you know, Lafferty's own project as a, as a writer, as a Catholic writer. But the existence of the proavitoi does seem to prove that the universe at least has a beginning or at least the existence of this immortal race or species um, allows Kieran to make this assumption, whether it's right or wrong. And being able to prove that the universe has an origin um, would be a, a proof of one of the premises of the cosmological argument, which is often used as a logical proof of God's existence. So if we're talking about a creation, somebody had to be a maker. There has to be a creator. And I think that that, rather than proving that the pro-avatoi are, are a perversion of God's creation, that they would be a very special creation tasked with keeping the knowledge of the origins of the universe within their species. But I think the way this story is presented, we're still stuck with a real ontological problem, a problem of how we know that the proavitoi know what they know. And, and that's because there's n- no clear-cut way to evaluate the truth statements that the eldest of the proavitoi, the oldest grandmother, makes. Kieran would just have to take it for granted or take it on faith, we could say, that 
because this culture has a ritual around revealing this knowledge of the origin of the universe, that it must also be accurate. And the closer you try to dig into these questions around knowledge and origins, even in a story where we can take it, where the authorial intent is to say that there is such a thing as this, it just gets real twisty the closer you look at it. Well, I love that you, you call into question even sort of the, the truthfulness, right? The veracity of this claim that you, none of us have ever died. It, it inspires me to actually start telling people that 900 grandmothers live in my basement as well. See if I can pull this over on somebody. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's how you get to be a special aspects man, which sounds like actually a pretty awesome job if you know anyone who's hiring for that. Uh, let's, I think, think, you know, I, I think you've made a good transition, another good transition because I, into our next thematic topic, which is jokes and laughter. We have seen this before in Lafferty, right? When we were here last year talking about Snuffles again, that was a story that was very much about jokes and, and laughter. And in Snuffles, Lafferty poses the question of why shouldn't there be a planet that's made just for fun, just for kicks, just for laughs, right? And again, laughter, jokes, humor seems to be, you know, at the center of this story. And here though, it's very interesting because there's, it's almost kind of an in-joke and our hero is, or, or at least our protagonist, maybe we should say, is not allowed in on the on on the joke here. So, Brandon, I guess the question, real broadly, for you here is: is what is Lafferty doing with jokes and laughter here, and and why can't we know what the joke is? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting concept. The idea that the origin of the universe is so funny and so outrageous, and perhaps gruesome and strange that you really shouldn't go seeking after it uh, until your time has come is a fascinating concept. We know that, you know, the, the grandmothers who are let in on the secret are only let in after 10 generations of their own progeny have, have been created or made. Uh, we don't really know how these people mate. We can assume it's like a pretty normal sort of, sort of way. Um, but there's this sense in the story that there is such a thing as too much wisdom um, and that that is a dangerous thing to have until you're able to know what to do with it practically, which seems to be uh, to sleep on it for a really long time and only wake up and laugh about it every once in a while. Uh, one of the grandmothers says that it is perhaps not a good idea to seek to seek to be too wise. And I think that this idea here, uh, Lafferty is com conflating the concepts of knowledge and wisdom. And, and this really echoes a platonic idea that perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom are the same. If you knew all of the right things to do, you would do them. If you had perfect knowledge, you would be forced to act in a perfectly wise way. Um, and for Plato also, this goes in hand, hand in hand with piety, with understanding God's will. Um, Lafferty seems to be saying here that sometimes knowledge is just too absurd to allow us to be wise. And he might be pointing out that, that wisdom, uh, is actually just a, a convention, something that's more subjective and done in practice rather than knowledge, which could have its roots in objectivity and something that can be proven. And that may be why the, the pro vitoi who know the truth of the origins of the universe really aren't allowed to go outside anymore. They have to stay in their, in their caves and in their little uh, nested spots on the, on the shelves. Yeah, I really wondered, you know, just sort of thinking, 
thinking this through and sort of wondering, you know, trying to imagine what is the the joke of their creation. And of course, this is a great craft, right? Is to tell people that there's this absolutely utterly hilarious joke that's so funny that it might kill you and then not actually tell anybody that joke because you can't actually write a joke that is in fact that funny. So that's a good craft lesson right there. Right. It reminds me of the, the you know, the Monty Python sketch, which is, you know, what's the funniest joke in the world? And they can only, people can only translate it one word at a time and it ends up being, uh, how does Hitler's dog smell? with his nose, <laughs> right? Which, I don't know, that's not a joke that's funny enough to kill people. But I imagine uh, I imagine trying to write a joke that that's funny is something on the level of an impossibility. And so that was certainly my first reading of this. Is, this is why we're not getting the joke. But I then started to wonder if actually the there maybe it isn't so much of a, a joke necessarily so much as the laughter is actually what's happening here and i wondered if laughter actually is in fact the origin of them right is if if it's not that it was a, a joke but that it's actually their laughter and i was thinking about this uh because i think since the last time we were here i have been binge reading gk chesterton which is a great thing to a great person to be binge reading if you are you know doing a gene wolf podcast for example and would be if we were doing an ra lafferty podcast also in fact chesterton already has been brought up this morning and one of the things that really has struck me about reading chesterton is the way that he characterizes christianity and and you know especially catholic christianity to which he was a a convert uh, chesterton really characterizes catholic christianity as a religion of festivals a religion of of joy right a religion of laughter and there's really a, a sense for chesterton that that the the redemption that Christ brings to the world is is a redemption of of joy, right? It's it's erasing uh, the the or at least accounting for redeeming uh, for the sins of all of us of all humanity and giving us something to be joyful about, something to laugh about. So I wondered here if actually what's going on is that what the proavitoi know is that laughter is their origin story. They grew out of laughter. They grew out of joy. That's the genesis. That's the origin. I think that's a really, really incredible reading. And it, and it calls to mind something that uh, was brought up earlier today with um, this sense of exuberance that Lafferty seems to include in his writing when talking about um, violence on some level. And we have in this story that the that the origin of the universe does include something gruesome, but also that's full of pleasure. It's maybe like a, a, a jouissance. It's like a, an excess of pleasure. And that this uh, excess is what the universe is creative, created out of, an, an exuberant love or an exuberant sort of violence. And that I think we see in this story, too, that the that the universe or the humans here are also violent. And and as we've seen in Gene Wolfe, Gene Wolfe is another Catholic writer who um, seems to have a, a fascination with the connection between violence and Catholicism or Christianity. And I wonder if we're not seeing something similar in this story where th there's an excessive joy that humans have perverted and turned into an excessive joy um, out of which we act violently. But God is able to create with something that we might characterize as violence, but it is a purely creative rather than a purely destructive force. 
Well, I think that's a, and I just keep transitioning us. I keep using your comments as segues, Brandon, but I think that is a great way to transition into to thinking about, about the issue of naming and, and identity in this story, which is, is front and center. It's the very first paragraph of the story is all about these, uh, the members of this expedition changing their names so that they can take part in the expedition, right? The other members of the expedition all change their names at something that is called the naming. But Kieran Swicegood only does this uh, after he's actually encountered the the 900 grandmothers. But what's interesting about the names that they that these guys take as they are going, as they are changing their identities from, I don't know, probably just regular civilians to something akin to space Vikings is to take ridiculous, hilarious names, uh, names like Blaze Bolt, for example. And so there is, I think, right at the beginning of this story, uh, a kind of marriage of violence and humor here that these guys have to take funny names in order to go out and do violence. And so I had a question here about, about Swicegood why he doesn't change his name with everyone else at the beginning of the story, and then what is it in the story that prompts him to change his name, right? At the end of the story, his name is now Blaze Bolt. And and I was unclear if if it's the encounter with the 900 grandmothers that that causes Karen Swicegood to change into Blaze Bolt, or if it's something about the encounter that just convinces him of the futility of trying to resist full-on being a mercenary, full-on being a space Viking. Well, there's a whole untold story at the end of, of 900 Grandmothers that takes place within an ellipsis, um, where we don't really understand what Kieran Swicegood has learned, uh, what he has done to these grandmothers on his way out, if his, if he's become violent, if this laughter and, and violence have combined for him, if he has crushed some of them, um, you know, we learn about the unpleasantness of him being king, and that's more unpleasant than what happened on this planet. But that kind of notion of more unpleasant indicates to me that something unpleasant has happened here, perhaps to the people on this planet. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right to point out that the bit of naming is a big part of the humor early on in the story, and they do all take these violent names. And I think this is a really good question to ask because Lafferty is pointing out here both the artificiality of the naming system. You know, there's a list of names that you can choose from if you can't think of your own violent mercenary name. And I just think that's a great joke. Um, but also he's pointing out the way that people artificially aspire to embody the names they choose. We get a note where, um, George Blood has literally put hair on his chest. He's physically altered himself to become more like his name. And that is what made him a man. And this connects to the theme of what we derive meaning from. This naming ceremony is about these people, um, being the owners of their own meaning. And maybe one of the questions to ask is whether they're choosing the right things to find meaningful in the world. But I think that we can say, you know, for certain on some level that, that Kieran does change his name because of this encounter. I think it's because he was unable to find the meaning in the answer or the lack of answer to the question he sought. So he wholeheartedly buys into the system that he didn't want to admit that he was entirely within. He thought being a special aspects man would keep him apart from all of the pillaging and violence that these space Vikings, as we're calling them, have engaged in. And that is just a lie. We see that he has avoided engaging with the truth and reality of his life by seeking this transcendent, seeking an answer to this transcendent question. And 
that once that was unsatisfied or unfulfilled for him, he can find nothing else to do than to just become a part of the thing that he was already a part of, that he is now wholly engaging with the system that he believed he could stay apart from. And I think that's why he has to choose the name. And Blaze Bolt is a pretty good name. It reminds me of a guy like in a silver unitard shooting laser pistols. Yeah, it is a great sort of superhero type of name. You know, something that, that that's really occurred to me while you've been talking, Brandon, is that this is, there's these, these mercenaries, this expedition, space Vikings, as I've been calling them, are a community, but Kieran Swicegood has been resisting being, fully committing himself to being a member of that community, even though he seems to have maybe voluntarily joined it, although possibly he was drafted, I guess we don't really know, but he wants to not be fully a member of it. He wants to keep one foot outside of that door. What he encounters in the hobbit hole beneath this space acropolis, though, is a fully functioning community, a family that in fact has a ritual of initiation. And he gets this described to him. And these people he meets who have gone through this ritual of initiation, they know the funniest joke in all of the universe. All they do is laugh, is sleep and, and wake up and laugh and then go to sleep again. And as you've said, that sounds like a pretty awesome life. That's the life we're all aspiring for, I think, in some way. Is this a lesson then? Has he actually seen that maybe the, the, the secret, the, the knowledge that I'm after is embrace the community that you find yourself in, right? Commit yourself to that community. And that's why he changes his name at the end. That's the thing that's been missing. And that, that the arc that he's had is actually to, to embrace being a member of this expedition fully. I think we could say that that's a lesson he's learned, but I, I wonder if it's the lesson that Lafferty wants us to learn. This, because of the way the ending reads so cynically to me, or maybe even nihilistic, as I said, I think Lafferty is really complicating the idea about the types of communities we participate in and what type of meaning they provide for us. I don't think that this final community that Kieran uh, Swicegood finds himself a part of provides him with anything other than the distraction from the reality that he has missed the mark in fulfilling his quest. And that is another form of this sort of nihilism that I've been talking about. And so I think that the, that it's not an uncomplicated answer, but that he's now using the community to keep him from feeling that emptiness or whatever is driving him in the same way that he was using the, the transcendent question of the origin of life to keep him from fully in, engaging and encountering with his, uh, his own life. Yeah, I think this, this question of, of violence is really at, at the core of these sort of di- di- different readings we might have of this. And it's actually something that, that, uh, the, the science fiction writer Andy Duncan brings up in his afterward to this story in this, this new best of collection where he asks what happens between the story's last two sentences, right? Lafferty tells us that Swicegood returned to the ship and then that he changed his name on the next voyage. And, and that's really all we get. And what Andy Duncan posits is that the expedition use violence to try to discover the secret to immortality, right? The, the violence that Swicegood himself ultimately chose not to employ, the, which he considered. I think we should just take that question up. So, Brandon, do you think that that's what happened? It seems like maybe you do. Yeah, I'm not sure that Swicegood himself used violence. We get the sense in the story that 
some sort of contracts have been signed, some sort of trade agreement has been created between the group of mercenaries here or Vikings who have come on this planet in search of uh, riches, uh, both cultural and material, and that the and that what Manbreaker is really after is um, the material wealth of the secret of extending life. Um, that they have really, really solid organ- organic chemistry fundamentals and that they can create any pharmaceutical and that this group of people are going to be the one who can export any type of pharmaceutical to anybody in the galaxy because the um, Prevotoi don't leave the planet in the same way. And I think it's an asteroid in the same way that the eldest of them don't leave the caves. They're very much kind of an enclave. So... I don't think violence was necessary uh, for the general mission of the expedition, though I do fear, uh, you know, in reading this story, kind of a lingering sense of uh, being unsettled is that Kieran does actually become violent with some of the eldest of these grandmothers. And that's the untold piece of the story. He threatens violence and maybe even that threat of violence is a moment of recognition uh, of of the breaking of his innocence as a character of trying to stay apart to be kept apart from the rest of these uh, brutes that he realizes he's really one of them and so whether or not the violence has occurred um the threat of violence is is a moment of recognition for Kieran I'm really interested in some of the the world building elements of, of this story, the, the sort of details or, or lack of details in some cases that, that Lafferty gives us here. And something that's great about the the last bit of the story where we're just told that Kieran Swicegood on their next mission for a short time at least becomes king of a sweet sea island. We don't know how he became king. It is possible that that was an elected position or that, uh, I don't know, some aquatic tart handed out a sword or something like that, right? And we should be getting a cut from Monty Python for this show, I guess. Um <laughs> But presumably that's not what happened at all, that there was some use of force. But to me, there's a, a kind of a contrast there between what we know about, between that and what we know about the expedition from the beginning of the story, where we're told that this expedition has a charter from somebody, some, some, some authority has granted this expedition some of its own authority to go to this asteroid and carry out its activities, right? It, it, what they are doing is legal in, in some sense, if, if not necessarily moral. And so I wonder how much violence is actually in sort of their, you know, their purview in, in the, the charter. Are they being sent out to do violence, which is what their name suggests, or are they, are these guys taking all of these ridiculous names that sound violent? Uh, almost in kind of contrast to what the, their actual nature of their job is, which is just to find commercial opportunities, right? They're just in, in you know, sales, basically. Yeah, I, I don't really, uh, I, I don't really know how to answer that question. I mean, we do have this charter. We don't know who it's from. But I think Lafferty does a really incredible job of, of providing us with enough of the generic tropes of the story that we can or generic tropes of the, you know, this kind of first contact genre so that he can keep the word count really tight. And so we can, we can only make assumptions based on those decisions. And I think the reason why we have these names is because we're meant to assume that, you know, there's some galactic government who's responsible for this exploration. They put some basic guidelines around what people are supposed to do. But, um, ultimately this is, this is an ugly 
business and not really, uh, not really a pretty one. They're not out there, you know, making, this is just about trade. And, you know, the, the whole idea of having a cultural explorer, or special aspects man on any expedition is, really another bit of artifice. It's like the names they take. This is the artificial premise of why we're here and maybe it helps contribute to the meaning of what we're doing for the the people that uh you know we're making first contact with. But they're really just along to determine whether or not there's anything of value that's non-material on the planet that can be profited from. So these people, these space Vikings, I think are really just rough mercenaries that are engaging in ruthless profiteering. Right. These guys have a charter in the, in the same way that, uh, you know, the East India Company had a, a charter or uh, really we might even think about these guys as being something akin to, to Captain Cook, I guess, right? Where, uh, you know, you've got a charter to go out and explore the, the South Pacific and, you know, do whatever you want to, to profit from that. Uh, but make sure you take an anthropologist with a couple of notebooks along with you, too, because we also want to our scientists back home also want to learn some some stuff. Uh, and that makes us feel good about sending out this mission. Uh, it's almost kind of a, a veneer that we can put on it, a polish or that we can put on on it to pretend that violence is not at the core of, of this type of expedition, right? It's something that we back home can, can, can feel more comfortable with. It seems to me to be what Lafferty is going for here. Yeah, I think so as well. Well, I think we're, we're just about out of time. I think we've got enough time here to, to at least tackle one more bit. We've, we've talked already about, well, I think it's fair to say how much we love this story. The story is awesome. We've talked about, uh, some of the great craft of, of Lafferty here, some of the great writing choices that he has made. But one thing that we've not really done enough of, I don't think, uh, is, to, to talk about the humor. Now, we've, we've also already talked about Andy Duncan's afterward here in the new Best Of, but I think we should finish up by invoking the comedian Patton Oswalt's introduction to this story. This story is good enough to, to need two people to comment on it here in this volume. And Patton Oswalt mentions that, hey, this story is hilarious. Uh, and it is, and we just haven't talked enough about it, I don't think. So, Brandon, let me just kick to you this question here. What were some of the funny bits that stood out to you in this story? Well, I think the beginning is really, really funny. All the naming, all the artificiality that we pointed out around it, I think is, is funny. But one line that really jumped out to me, um, you know, when I'm thinking about some of the jokes in the story comes from Manbreaker, um, when he's trying to get through to Kieran about the fact that the origins of life doesn't matter. What matters is the fact that life might not have to end. We can all live forever if we can just crack this organic chemistry problem. And uh, Manbreaker says this, it passes belief that you can be so simple-minded. They say that one has finally mellowed, out, mellowed when he can suffer fools gracefully. By God, I hope I never come to that. <laughs> I think that's a great line. It surprised me, and I thought it was really funny. Yeah, and the the, the name itself, like Manbreaker, Crag. This is an awesome name. We get Blastberg, George Blood, Gut Boy, Barrel House. I mean, like that's yeah, it's just hilarious. <laughs> Though probably my favorite is actually Move Mannion, and uh, and Lafferty says this: Move Mannion. When Move says Move. You move. And this is, this sounds like an experience from the military to me, right? Right, yeah, right, this right. This is like yeah, some, sure. someone shouting make way or make <laughs> yeah. a hole, right? This is definitely uh, coming out of some military experience that I thought was, was awesome. But, you know, there's no way, I think, to read this list of cool space Viking names that you can take and not start to think of which one you would want. So, 
Brandon, what name would you take if you I, had to join? You know, I've been I've been thinking a lot about this, and I haven't come up with a good answer. But thankfully, you know, the organizers of this convention, I think, put one on all of our name tags. Uh, mine here is John Sourwide, and I think that that's probably a, a better name than I I could have come up with for myself. <laughs> mine actually was probably more appropriate for you, given it's the alliteration of your own name, but it's Biddy Bencher. <laughs> <laughs> the name that I wanted to pick for me, though, so my, my full name is Glendon, but no one calls me that except my mother, and even still, that's only when I'm in trouble for something, which is still happening despite <laughs> the fact that I am bald. Uh, but I thought that I would go by Grimdark Glendon. There's a sort of double alliteration there, and Don in my name means dark, so there's a double dark. It seems like the type of wordplay that Lafferty himself would have liked. I don't know. Maybe there's some universe where I actually am a character in an R.A. Lafferty story. <laughs> uh, one, one can dream, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I think we are just about out of time. Yeah. So I think that's going to do it for, for this episode, or at least the recorded portion. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. And we do want to thank the LAFCON organizers once again for having us back. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to do this again next year. This con is just an absolute blast, a real joy. And for you listeners at home, in the car, at the gym, doing your dishes, we'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.